This is Richard Zink of the Biopharmaceutical Section of the American Statistical Association. I'm here today with Nate Silver, developer of the Pakoda System for Baseball Prediction, poker enthusiast, founder and blogger of 538.com, former New York Times columnist, author of the book The Signal and the Noise, and most recently contributor to the sports channel ESPN. Nate, welcome to you. Yeah, thank you. Let's start off with The Signal and the Noise, which is excellent. Uh, you accomplished the impossible. You wrote a book about statistics that everyone can enjoy. Congrats to you on oh, the success. You. <laughs> so in several places, you describe a particular problem for prediction. Prediction has a great deal of uncertainty to it, and it's appropriate to report this uncertainty as part of the prediction. However, the general public may interpret this variability as a lack of conviction or self-confidence. Sure. How can statisticians be more honest about the uncertainties inherent in their predictions and at the same time have the public accept these predictions as reliable? Well, you, you began with what I think is a really challenging question, um, but let me give you a couple of, of hints, I guess, at, at maybe things that are helpful. Um, I think number one is, is having an open dialogue with the reader. Um, so at my website, since I write kind of every day about an election, for example, you can build that trust and that rapport with the reader over time. Um, I think, by contrast, statisticians should be careful about, well, you're going on TV and you, they want a statistician for like a five-second news clip about the lottery. Well, the lottery is pretty straightforward to, <laughs> to understand, I suppose. But some more challenging type of problem and you just get a sound bite, you know, I think that can be a little damaging. Um, part of what I push back against this idea that you can always get the whole story out and in, in a couple of minutes. Um, I think it's more about explaining to people why, first of all, first of all, I'll explain that very confident predictions, it's not really correlated with accuracy. In fact, if anything, it might be inversely correlated. And you can demonstrate that by, by putting other people under scrutiny and pushing back a little. Um, but then also saying that, look, if we think of this as, as what I call forecasting and not prediction, meaning that I'm evaluating risks and opportunities, um, that might resonate with people a little bit more. People in business, for example, um, or in military campaigns have to take that type of perspective where you're aware of different opportunities and threats. Um, the other way is I think if you not just communicate verbally, but also use graphics, um, you know, visually it tends to be a lot easier to present uncertainty. If you see a map of a hurricane track, for example, you see how it diverges and the uh, kind of confidence range as you move out. Um, days or, or weeks ahead of time. Um, people kind of grasp that, I think, by, by nature, um, whereas if you put things in a table sometimes or describe them in text, it becomes harder. Yeah, weather is definitely a good example for uh, people seeming to uh, accept the, the variability of forecasts in hurricanes. Yeah, I think people have, and the weather forecasters have worked for a long time not only to make their forecasts better, but also to work on how they present that. That information. Um, it's challenging if, for example, you have an area that might have a 30% a chance of a hurricane impact, um, where on the one hand, that's a very serious threat. On the other hand, um, it's still going to miss 70% of the time, even if the forecast is, is correct. Um, so there are challenges there, but, but um, the National Weather Service works a lot with behavioral economists, with psychologists, um, with people in the field about how do you present information to a local community. Um, they also believe that you should never alter the information or, or dumb it down. Um, you have to be accurate, um, but the kind of tone and tenor you apply to it um, and the mode of presentation, there's some flexibility, and, and there has to be. Well, overfitting is an ever-present problem when developing a predictive model. 
John Ioannidis published a paper in 2005 explaining why most published research findings are false. And Bayer Laboratories found they couldn't replicate two-thirds of the hypotheses found in the medical lit literature when conducting the experiments themselves. Problems in medicine and genomics are different than those in business applications in that there's typically an order of magnitude more predictors than observations available, so it's possible to obtain a model that predicts the training data perfectly. So obtaining additional samples is also extremely expensive, so cross-validation techniques are used in these situations to assess overfitting. These concepts are rarely, if ever, discussed in introductory statistics courses. Yeah. How can we better educate other scientists about the dangers of overfitting and the techniques needed to address it? I mean, if I were running a class, right, I would, I would probably conjure up some data set where, um, where you can get a really strong fit in the model and then, and then expose what happens when you get outside of the frame. I mean, people have to learn this, I think, by, by example, basically. Um, and it is a, a really a crisis of, of science, I think, where you're having such low replication rates in papers in medicine um, to the extent... Um, other ideas are testable in medicine. Its replication is somewhat easier than, <laughs> than other fields, like political science, say. Um, but the validation success, prediction success, replication success is, is low across a number of fields. Um, and this is something that gets worse in some ways when you have more data because you have more different ways to manipulate that data. Um, so it's a problem. Um, I, think, I think, you know, number one, making people aware of it is important. And number two, creating better incentives for people. Um, if you look at, at journal articles, number one, there's a bias toward um, publishing positive findings or findings that are, are novel. Um, you know, number two, there are not usually, even in papers in, in very good journals like Science or Nature, um, you might not, you probably need a methodologist to scrutinize <laughs> all of those. If I were running a journal, I'd say, well, maybe you have a, a three-person um, review panel in your field, but also you have um, like two statisticians to <laughs> to vet the methodology of that paper um, because if, if you, otherwise it can be kind of the blind leading the blind people who are very skilled at many aspects of their domain but don't understand when you're just um, committing murder basically with the way you're you're running analysis statistically. Um, great. I I hope this isn't an overstatement, but uh, you're a champion of Bayesian methodologies. Um, in the introduction of your book, you state, we can never make perfectly objective predictions. They will always be tainted by our subjective point of view. Uh, and you provide a nice example in Chapter 8 where you discuss different uh, perceived states of the universe in terms of the economy, bearable, and the median of these two extremes. So in the example, as evidence is collected over time, that you show that regardless of the prior belief in the economy, all models converge to the same answer. However, many practical problems have a large number of possible parameters, so the ability to assess the sensitivity is limited. So in general, how can we show Bayesian convergence in problems with large numbers of parameters and communicate this to the average person? Well, it's more attitudinal, I suppose, in, in some ways. I mean, first of all, I think, I think science, um, some branches of science statistics have traditionally um, fought against the idea that you can't perform a perfectly objective <laughs> experiment. Um, and obviously, if you move toward, say, the physical sciences, maybe it becomes a bit easier um, than in the social sciences instead. Um, but starting out and saying that we do make certain assumptions, even if you think about how is data collected, you know, someone usually sets up some type of measuring device to measure <laughs> that data. It's never truly kind of virginal. Um, so to say that, look, we do start out with assumptions, and we're going to state those, and maybe those are right, maybe those are wrong, but we're disciplined about revising our beliefs. Most of us have trouble 
doing that, have trouble <laughs> saying that, well, I start out with this theory, um, and you know what, the evidence is mounting against it, so, so I'm going to change that theory. Collectively, that occurs. That's kind of what the process of, of consensus in science is, but usually it occurs people having disagreements, and they're resolved over time in the literature. And I think it might occur faster if people themselves are, are, um, are more willing to, to revise their views as the evidence might demand. Sure. Uh, in your conclusion, you state that under Bayes' theorem, it isn't acceptable to pretend that you don't have any prior beliefs. Yeah. Do you think that uh, non-informative or diffuse priors are a cop-out? Um, not, well, I mean, I, what, I, what I'd say is I, I view this a bit more philosophically than answering kind of uh, technical questions about what your prior distributions are. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, no, I think people should uh, <clears throat> <be> have <laughs> more informed I think people do, is what I would say, usually have more informed priors, and probably being explicit about that, I think, is, is useful. Um, I mean, you know, one way to think of it is you kind of start out with the kind of conventional wisdom um, or with the kind of consensus as your prior and, and weigh against that, potentially. Um, but, you know, I mean, there are a lot of problems that people, people are, I mean, statisticians would know, but I think lay people don't know as much of, you know. One of the problems, I think, with a lot of kind of sophomoric people who are getting in statistics is that they think that, well, um, well, you don't disprove the null hypothesis. That's not the same thing as saying there's no effect. Just saying the evidence isn't, isn't credible enough yet. Um, people aren't, I think, sufficiently concerned about the, the power of the tests a lot of the time. So, but, but all of this is, is tied together. So communication is key for a statistician to be successful, and, and your book frequently references popular culture, Saturday Night Live, films such as 2001, The Terminator, and West Side Story, pop music such as Joy Division. Do you find incorporating popular culture helps in the communication of statistical ideas or at least makes them more easily digestible? I hope so. Um, I mean, I think people in general are, are too keen to draw barriers between, you know, what statistics are and, and other types of scientific endeavor, really. Um, and, you know, I think in a lot of ways, a lot of these problems are, are pretty cool and pretty interesting. If you, you know, getting for me to get to write about earthquakes, for example, you know, my dad grew up in, in California. My uncle was a geologist, right, who kind of worked on some of this stuff. So being, understanding the science of seismology, um, you know, really cool to talk to people who are working in that field or, or weather prediction or certainly when it comes to poker and, and baseball. Um, so these are interesting problems that, that statisticians are, are working on. Um, and so, yeah, as long as you can, anytime you can bridge that gap, I think that's, that's helpful. Um, and it's a book written for um, maybe not quite a, a mass audience, but not just for an inner circle of statisticians or, or academics also. I mean, there are a lot of very valuable ideas in academic papers that um, because people don't focus on, on the writing as much and because, you know, some academic departments um, in a lot of fields kind of discourage their, <laughs> their people from uh, communicating outside the bubble that don't really go anywhere. I mean, one of the things I say in the premise of the book is that um, for many, many years before the, uh, the printing press, there was really no technological progress to speak of or very, very slow because no one had any way to record new ideas. Well, in a similar way, if you kind of only communicate your ideas to a few people because you don't bother to, to find ways to present it in a way that, that people who might be very, very smart um, but who don't have expertise in that domain or don't know that the, the lingo or the jargon might not really understand, then, then those ideas are going to die, I think, sooner or later. Yeah, preaching to the choir. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you brought up the idea of subject matter, um, which is a good segue into this next question. So William Seeley Gossett 
uh, known as student to most of us, got interested in statistics as a way to better develop experiments for beer brewing. And it's probably fair to say that baseball led you to statistics as a way to better understand the game and predict player performance. So the discipline of statistics benefits in that other people's interests lead them to statistics. However, this phenomenon may cause people to think of statistics more as a set of tools and less as a discipline in and of itself. So how as statisticians do we promote statistics as a discipline? Um, you know, I do think the more important mission is to is to get people interested <laughs> in it, right? You know, and it, it, sports is one way. I saw some uh, uh, chart on one blog the other day that, that was working in beer that said kind of, well, you can take the average grade given to a beer relative to its alcohol content, and there's some, you know, positive relationship up to a point, and then there's a, a fall off, I think. Um, no, I think anything you can do to get people interested in it. Um, and one of the things about about people who come to my site, 538, they'll say, I thought I hated math. They'll often say math, not statistics, um, um, until I found your site, but this makes sense to me. Well, probably they weren't all that well taught to, to begin with. They were taught a lot of a theory, say, in an econometrics course, um, instead of having applied hands-on knowledge. And so, yeah, I think uh, we, look, we need more <laughs> statistics yeah, so graduates in the United States. Sorry, we need more statistics and math and science graduates in the United States. So I think at this point, anything you can do to trigger that interest is valuable. And do you think uh, recent terms such as analytics and data scientists obfuscate the role of statistics and statisticians? I mean, I, you know, I, I do think statistics is is part and parcel of of science. I find the term data scientist itself like a little <laughs> a little euphemistic and kind of wishy washy. But but I, you know, I, again, I don't care what people call themselves as long as they're they're doing the work. Well, uh, can you describe your new role for us at ESPN? Yeah, so the idea is to um, is to find a way to scale up what I've been doing at 538 and make it more sustainable, really. So instead of just me and, and one other writer, um, we're not going to be having a staff of 15 or 20 people and, and providing coverage of politics and sports and economics and a number of fields every day. Believe me, these are not all things that I'm an expert in, so we're going to have to find other talented uh, journalists who combine that, that writing skill with a statistical um, acumen. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there's nothing about, about the philosophy behind what I do that, that only applies to, to politics or to sports, say. Obviously, in some fields, I think you have to be more careful. You know, a lot of a big theme at 538 pieces is sometimes – you know, we don't really know what's going to happen, but no one else knows <laughs> knows either, right? right. Um, emphasizing the uncertainty is, is sometimes more where we can add value, I think, when it comes to certain types of, of events. Um, but it's just to take a more uh, a broader range of domains that we're applying this kind of philosophy to. Great. Well, is there anything uh, left on your statistical bucket list that you hope to accomplish, such as a signal in the noise, too? Oh, gosh. Well, everything I... All the ideas I had, I used up in that book, and I'm 35, so I guess when I'm 70 years old, I'll, <laughs> I'll have a second book to write. So you've had a good run. <laughs> it's been a good run, but no, I mean, the book took a long time, and, and um, I think to take the time, because I am used to writing, uh, you know, a blog post turned around in a day, or, or maybe a magazine piece that takes a couple of weeks. Um, so if you're writing a book, I think it is important to step back and develop a kind of whole and complete and robust argument. Um, if someone's, if you're going to indulge someone's patience to read, you know, it's a 500-page book, then um, and I think you owe it to them to have spent a lot of effort and time 
um, revising the argument yourself and reconsidering yourselves and pulling in a lot of different techniques, a lot of different evidence, and having something which wouldn't work so well is just like a 100-word a blog post instead. So, But it's also very time-consuming, um, and right now I'm going to focus on building out the, the new 538 with the SPN. Oh, one last question for that. Are, will you be hiring any statisticians? I think we certainly want people who have fiscal training, or at least, well, what I'd say is, uh, you know, stats are at the core of what we do, and we, we can't publish things that have dubious methodology. Um, whether people come from a statistics background and are trained to write, or the other way around, I'm not sure. It'll probably be, be a mix, I think. Um, you know, I think there also sometimes are people who might not have a lot of training in statistics, but who have good uh, intuition for making empirical queries from the data. Um, you know, a lot of poker players, for example, um, may not have taken a stats course or university program, um, but they, they understand variance better than a lot of people do. <laughs> they understand um, the Bayesian notion of kind of updating your beliefs, say, about what your opponent has. So, so people who have that, that intuition even if then we can, I think, maybe train the techniques. Look, we might have, we're in New York, we might have some people go and, and take a course at NYU or Columbia or something. Um, but um, at the same time, I know it's also very hard to, to train that if see people have the wrong intuition for it and have no aptitude for it whatsoever. Okay. Well, thanks very much for speaking with me today. Definitely. Thank you.